Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. And again, as always, welcome. And I want to especially welcome these families and parents for sharing this moment with us here today. And we're glad that we have extended family and friends that have been able to join us. It's always an honor to welcome as a community and affirm the lives of our newest members and bless them with the joy and the promise, all of that that we can muster. Especially because so many of us, if we think about it, we've experienced grace in some pretty normal ways through, maybe through churches and communities that loved us and cared for us. If we were children, maybe they did so because they told us the story of Jesus. They helped us to understand some of what was going on in the world. And then they also gave us space to shriek and play and dance in the front. It's amazing. If we may also have this story that maybe when we got a little bit older, perhaps Churches helped us welcome our own awkwardness, and they helped us to ask and to carry the big questions that we already had, and they helped push us toward the wholeness that only comes in trusting that we don't have to be alone in the world. And it is the mystery of these things that we affirm when we make space for children to be welcomed and blessed, and so I thank you, friends, for letting us participate in this moment here today and for trusting us as a community with these precious gifts that you have brought into the world, and we celebrate that here today. And that said, I also want to thank those of you who came out and pitched in to help give the Inglewood Community Association a hand with all of their leaves. I know some of you drove up today, and you're like, it doesn't look like anybody did anything, but I promise you. We gathered more than 80 bags of these things and had a great time here together. And it also helped that there was an, uh, uh, an urban market here, a pop-up food market that we also got to sort of celebrate and participate in. And the truth is that there's always so much going on here in Inglewood and we want to keep leaning into it as part of our shared life in this city. And we also want to keep finding simple ways to serve and help out whenever we can. So thank you to those of you who gave a little bit of your weekend time. Yes, it was sunny. Yes, we got to hang out together. But thanks for lending your energy to help us serve here well. And also thanks to those of you who give your time and your strength all across Calgary to help out volunteer causes week in and week out. Now today we find ourselves in week three of our series on Joseph. And I hope that the first two weeks that we have spent together have whet your appetite for where we are going in the next month. And I get it, two months is a long time to spend looking at one specific character. But when you think about it, we do this in all kinds of areas. I mean, my wife is watching This Is Us. She's been watching it for a while. And by watching, I mean crushing it. And I feel like every time I sit down next to her, there's this emotive soundtrack to her life. And it's just pulling at me to try and try and see if I'll watch an episode or two is what it's trying to do. And the point is that we spend weeks and months with characters all the time. Whether that's in binging a show or tuning in weekly to one or working through some classic fiction book that's four inches thick. And in fact, most of us, this extended, for most of us, this extended relationship is super meaningful where we grow attached to characters over time and to the themes that provide some clarity for us in our experience. Several, several years ago, I was working my way through Tolkien's books one summer. I, wor- I read The Hobbit first, then I read Lord of the Rings, and when I got to the end, I can still remember this experience that I had, almost this emptiness. I was in shock. I was like, well, like what am I supposed to do now? Should I go take a shower? Because all I've been doing is reading for eight months. But the point is, I had this tangible longing 
for the story to keep on going on forever. Because connecting with characters costs us something. We realize that our human stories have their limits, just like our favorite characters. They're cut short by mortality or tragedy or by mistakes they make. And yet, we offer ourselves to the stretching that characters bring us, which generally feels ill-advised when you catch yourself crying over someone that you know isn't real in a world that doesn't exist. But I hope that our paying attention to Joseph's story shapes you in new ways simply because we are taking our time with it. And we're going to let ourselves get to know him and feel as though we aren't so far removed from this ancient tale which may have happened last week as we met Joseph as a 17-year-old. He's preferenced by his father. He's walking around in this ornate robe, and he's snitching on his brothers. And then to top it all off, he has the audacity to tell everyone about the high places that he's going to rise to. And we talked about how, for Joseph, some of us might have this experience as well, where we get divine direction, and it comes to us in the dreams that we have from us looking out ahead into our future and picturing who we are or who we might want to be. And how this, part, and this might be part of how God might speak to us, or at the very least, how God partners with us in shaping our human experience. And the truth is that sometimes we trip up in pursuing our dreams and our vision for the future. Maybe we get all excited, we tell everyone what we're gonna do, And then life with all of its harshness can leave us wounded and unwilling to imagine new ways of being when it doesn't go the way that we planned. And we will see how Joseph's story might help us in spaces like that, learning to trust that even when we can't carry our dreams or when we don't live them well, God carries us toward them and reminds us that our creative impulse and our imaginative living are a reflection of divine character a divine character that brings wholeness bit by bit to all created things in this world. So today what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the story in the aftermath of Joseph doing all this dreaming. And let's just say it doesn't go well. But before we do that, let's pray together in this moment. Join me now. Oh, great God. We are thankful for this time and this space that we share today. And we are grateful for the chance to make confessions of your kindness, where our eyes have been lifted even for just a moment from our various situations, whatever they are, to consider your faithful presence all around us. And we have also been able to celebrate with these families and how your creative work is seen in every wriggling human life. And we ask, would you guide us gently toward a clearer understanding of your great love today? And help us to trust, even for the first time, that your way is good, that it brings us true life. And we ask for grace to live in agreement with that way. And wherever we're anxious, would you be our peace? And where we are busy and we're clamoring for control, would you be our rest? And where we're heavy, maybe we're caught up carrying things that you never meant for us to We ask, would you be our relief and our guide into your tender goodness? We pray in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right, wonderful. Today, we need to talk a little bit about fault finding and comebacks, poor choices, and another story. 
And as we get going, we're going to start off where we left off last week. And Joseph's had a couple of dreams, and he, in these dreams, he sees his family and his friends deferring to him. His brothers hate him for having these dreams, and his father basically tells Joseph to shut up and take it easy for a while. And presumably, there's a bit of a time lapse after this happens, because then we read in the story that now his brothers had gone to graze their flocks in Shechem, or near Shechem, and Israel, who's Jacob, he says to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, Joseph replied. So Jacob said to Joseph, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. And then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. And there's a couple things we need to unpack here. First of them is we need to do a little bit of geography. Because if you're reading through Genesis and you get to this part, these place names are going to tip you off. And this is because a little earlier in the story, in Genesis 34, there was, there's this tragic story about Jacob and some of his older children. See, Jacob and his family, they were effectively wandering sheep herders. And what that meant is that they had to move around from area to area, just like other small tribal groups, looking for plant life and water to help support themselves and their flocks. And at some point in all that wandering, while they were near a particular settlement, Joseph's sister Dina is assaulted by one of the young men from that community, a guy named Shechem. And the story goes that, despite Joseph's brothers being furious about this happening, this Shechem and his father ask and arrange for him to marry Dina. Now, whether they were doing this to save face or they were wanting to enter an economic alliance with Jacob's family, we don't know. But what we see is that Joseph's older brothers trick this other tribe. And this is what they say. They say, okay, you want to become our family? Well, we can't be family with people who are uncircumcised. Very curious trait. So get the procedure done and we'll make a deal. And for some reason, Shechem and his family agree to this risky uh, business venture. And the text says that while the men were still sore, that's pretty descriptive, Simeon and Levi, who are Dina's brothers and Joseph's half-brothers, They go into the village and they kill all the men. And it is a brutal scene. Not only are they murdering, but they take all the women and children from that village and likely assault and mistreat them as part of the looting. And not surprisingly, Jacob has to move his whole family before a gang war breaks out as the surrounding tribes gather together to take a bit of revenge. So... When a little bit later we learn that Joseph's brothers have taken their father's flock 60 miles north to where? To Shechem? Back to the same region where this story took place earlier? Alarm bells should be going off for us as we read. What are they doing back there? What's going to happen? And then for some reason we see Jacob sending Joseph to go check on them. Which is so weird Like, first of all, does Jacob not know what we've been reading in the story, that his sons hate Joseph? And now he's sending Joseph many miles to go check on them. Which, given Joseph's track record of being a lying snitch like we talked about last week, things aren't going to go well here. And then, there's this potentially volatile location they're in. And it seems like Jacob's sending his favorite son into a super dodgy situation, and he doesn't see what's going on here. And we just need to name then how sometimes our lives unfold in a very similar way. 
where we get caught up in bad places or difficult times or sticky situations through no fault of our own. Where those who are supposed to be looking out for us or helping us, they are actually part of the problem. And for some of us, this can be our family. But sometimes it's just a boss who leaves us to fend for ourselves. They're not, they're not being mean, they're just not aware of what they're doing. Or maybe a coworker who doesn't pull their weight on a project and leaves us exposed and responsible. Or maybe some of us have had a mentor who coaches us and trains us and believes in us only to disappear when we needed them most. And it's important to recognize that not all of the messes that Joseph encounters are his own doing. And that in our lives too, sometimes we get hurt by those who send us or help us or leave us in part of our story that we wish we could have avoided. And before we're done today, we're going to think about hope can come to us in these kinds of experiences. But for now, maybe you just need to be reminded that there's more to your story than the moments that weren't your fault. And that your health and your joy and your courage are worth fighting for now, even if someone's let you down before. And we're going to come back to this at the end today, so hold on to that. So Joseph travels to where his brothers are supposed to be. And the next piece of the picture is a, it's pretty vivid. It shows us how vulnerable Joseph is because it says that a man finds Joseph just wandering around in the fields. And he asks him, he says, what are you looking for, young man? And Joseph finds out from this stranger that his brothers have actually gone a little bit further away. So he keeps looking and he eventually finds them. But we read that they see him first, perhaps because of this elaborate reflective vest coat thing that he's wearing. And they plotted to kill him, the text says. Here comes the dreamer, they call him. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So that's what they do. They grab him, they tear off his coat, and when they throw him in a cistern, the, the verb for throw here in the Hebrew is one that was often used to refer to lowering someone into their grave. They aren't just putting Joseph there so he can't get out. They're leaving him there to die of exposure. And when we think back to last week, some of what we're seeing here makes sense a little bit. I mean, Joseph's brothers don't like him because he was the favorite. But he didn't really help himself by telling bad stories about them and then salting the wound by telling everybody that someday he was going to be in charge. And when you look at this, it mirrors some of the patterns of our closest relationships, if you think about it. How things tend to escalate. Am I right? I mean, Joseph might have run his mouth a little bit, but his brothers are stripping him naked and leaving him to die alone in the desert. That's straight out of a Godfather movie. And it seems like a bit of an extreme jump to go from a lying snitch to trying to kill someone. But I want to go back briefly to something we looked at last week, how Joseph was working with his brothers, and he brings this bad report or an evil report back about them. And what's interesting is how this same Hebrew word for bad or evil, it pops up again here in this section and we miss it in our English translations. Because the brothers literally say this, they say, let's throw him in a cistern and say that an evil, there's that word again, that an evil animal got him. And there's a kind of clever wordplay here that shouldn't be lost on us. 
Because the ancient storytellers, they're trying to make a subtle point. They're pointing to how Joseph used harmful words and how these things undermined his relationship with others. And then, how these unresolved wounds escalated into where now, here he is, He's about to become victim of yet more harmful phrases. And listen, we're going to continue unpacking how Joseph's family situation and closest relationships are a significant character in the story all on their own. And we do so to do justice to the text, but we also do this because if we're honest, our domestic experience and our closest relationships are often ground zero for wounding in our lives too. And part of what Joseph's story shows us is that the words we use have a way of coming back to us. I mean, are you ever too demanding with your partner? Or do you ever catch yourself being harsh with someone at work or with your own children? Or maybe there's a family member or a coworker or someone you know that just wears on your patience a lot. And so you find yourself blowing them off or putting them in their place. And I'm not trying to say that there aren't times when things get heated, when exchanges happen and we say things we don't mean and we have to apologize. Trust me, some days that feels like my daily routine. No, what I'm saying is that the truth is that these kinds of rhythms in relationship are normal. They're a byproduct of living with others and learning to care for each other well. Well, actually, what I think the story's saying is that if we use words that hurt and we don't own them, and we don't work to repair the damage that they make and the brokenness they cause, we can be wounded in ways when those words come back to us in measure. In the cutting comments of a friend or in the sarcasm of a loved one or in the raw emotion of the children in our home. Making this a story that's more about just a warning to tell the truth and to use care in how we speak, but also a reminder that we can always choose to own the ways that our words have led to cycles of hurt in our relationships. And before they come back to us, we can step away from escalation and we can work to restore those connections. Even if Joseph can't seem to get this right in the story. So then, We come back to the action and they've grabbed Joseph and they've thrown him in a pit and they are ruthless because literally right after this, they just go and eat dinner like nothing's happened. And one of the things that we have to look at today is we have to look at a couple of characters who come into the story here. It's two of the older brothers in the story, Reuben, who was Jacob's oldest son, Joseph's oldest brother, and Judah, who was number four. And Reuben appears in this tale right as the brothers see Joseph coming. They can see him coming over the hill. And Reuben pipes up and says, hey, don't kill him and put him in the pit. Just put him in the pit and see what happens. The text tells us that he did this because he intended to come and maybe save Joseph later. But then we we also meet Judah. And he shows up after Joseph is in the pit. And they're eating this meal. And they see some merchants coming over the hill. And Judah speaks up and says, hey, we don't really need to spill any blood here. Let's just sell him because, I mean, he is our brother after all. And this is a bit of a tricky story because what they're doing is terrible and it's inhumane. And it's especially brutal because the text makes it obvious that they're only doing it because they want to destroy Joseph's dream. 
They're so cold-hearted that they will consider murder and human trafficking as their only options. And yet, both of these brothers seem to be having second thoughts in the face of doing something that's not right. And there's this intriguing way that their reactions might shape in us the right kind of motivation in moments when we are under pressure and when we're facing difficult choices. Because, see, Reuben, he's shown up already in the story. In an earlier chapter, there's this throwaway line where we learn about him for just a moment. We learn that Reuben has gone and he slept with one of his father's wives, who also happens to be the mother of two of his brothers, which is so weird. And while this is certainly dysfunctional because of the patriarchy in the text, it's especially offensive in the ancient culture because what it was implied in Reuben doing this is he was trying to subvert his father's power. He's a traitor to the family. And some commentators suggest that him jumping to Joseph's defense here is an attempt to restore his relationship with his father. He knows that if Joseph gets killed here, he's going to be held responsible as the oldest, and he's motivated by fear and guilt. And then there's Judah, who's effectively trying to protect his own butt from blood guilt. When he says this, hey, if, if we murder him, we're going to be on the hook. But if we sell him as a slave, which is kind of an escape on a very weak technicality. He doesn't actually care about Joseph. He's not trying to save Joseph's life. He's just trying to save his own skin. Which, if we think about it, is similar to how we react sometimes. Maybe we do the right thing in a situation, not because it's right, but because we're motivated by some shame over a previous mistake we made. Or maybe we get involved in a situation not out of wholeness, but because we're trying to rescue a relationship that we are very quickly destroying. Or maybe we find ourselves evaluating what we should do, not based on what's right, but on how we are sure to protect ourselves in the process. And the story plays out. Both Reuben and Judah are participants in this really dark moment. And neither of them saves their vulnerable brother, Joseph, which is terrible. But part of what we need to note in these moments we need to note these characters because they're going to make an appearance later in the story. And where their character falls here and fails here, we're going to see how under all this brokenness they're showing us, there lies a resilience that might encourage some of us. Encourage us to do the right thing for the right reasons, yes. And encourage us to not let guilt or self-perfection cloud our judgment, okay, but maybe also encourage you to remember that one poor choice never defines the rest of your story. And that ultimately weakness and darkness, those come to you in a moment, but they don't ever last. And so we look and we see that they pull Joseph out of the pit and they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And then they go into the cover-up portion of their plan. They take Joseph's bright, brilliant coat and they dip it in a goat's blood and then they go back to their father and they ask him, hey, is this coat Joseph's? And from there, Jacob's broken heart and imagination do all the work. He concludes that Joseph has been killed in the countryside by an animal, sent out on a mission for his father and caught up in the process. And we read this, that Jacob tore his clothes 
And he put on sackcloth and he mourned for his son many days. And all of his other sons and his daughters, they came to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So Joseph's father wept for him. Which, isn't that hard to imagine, really? I mean, when we think about everything that Jacob's been through, he had a really, really tough family situation and ultimately his brother tries to kill him and then he was in exile and then he's cheated and then he loses his soulmate. And this all in the face of God having told him that he would be blessed. That ultimately a nation and kings would come from him. And so when he hears that his dearest son is dead, he can't take it anymore. And he withdraws and he grieves and he wishes for death himself. And you can imagine that this pain came to some degree from losing his son. But let's not forget that Jacob was a dreamer too. Earlier in Genesis chapter 28, he has a dream where he famously sees this staircase going to heaven and he hears this divine voice telling him that he will never be alone. Which is why we should note this intriguing one-liner from the story last week. See, Joseph shares these crazy dreams he has about how he's going to become the leader of all. And the text says that Jacob rebukes him and tells him to take it easy. But then there's this one line that says, it says that Jacob kept this matter in mind. And we aren't, we aren't sure what this means here. But what it does hint at is that maybe in hearing Joseph spout off about his dream, in that happening, Jacob remembered the voice of God. And in the impulsive ramblings of his teenage son, Jacob sensed the faithful work of God in his life. Which is why Joseph's death would have hit him so hard. I mean, we all deal with loss. And sometimes things don't go our way. But when your source of hope is lost, and when the thing that's kept you going is taken away from you, Walter Brueggemann describes it pointedly when he says, then we are all children of grief. Not only that of death, but of empty failure and of dreams dreamed but unlived. All kinds of tomorrows are crushed for the sake of tough, ruthless todays. And like Jacob, then we find in moments like this, there is ample ground for refusing to be comforted. And maybe... That's an experience that rings true for you today. Maybe you're facing darkness or grief or loss. And maybe you hear in this story, you can see an area of your life, a previous relationship or a failed venture or a broken promise where you have long since stopped believing there was any comfort. And like Jacob, the arc of your story has brought you to a place where you have no idea how you're going to keep going because the pieces of who you thought you are are laying at your feet. And it's that heavy place, unfortunately, that our story brings us to today. But it doesn't leave us there. Because we see Jacob grieving, and then Genesis 37 says this, Meanwhile, the merchants sold Joseph to Egypt, to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. And I don't know about you, but man, does that meanwhile stand out. Because Jacob is living in the deep sorrow of a tragedy and Joseph has been wrenched from all that he knows. He's living a nightmare. And meanwhile, the story keeps 
going. The story of God's willful and persistent way of saving and rescuing. Because while Jacob grieves and thinks his story is over and Joseph weeps and fears that all is lost, God is already in the story sparking new beginnings. New beginnings that will someday see Joseph in a position to save his entire family. Someday we're going to see Jacob's family grow into a vast nation, which might be what you need to be reminded of today. Because there are times when all hope feels lost. And places that we come to where it's important to give ourselves space and to name the pain that cannot be comforted. But maybe, in this ancient story, you can catch a glimpse of how God's work in you and faithfulness to you, it doesn't end when all the lights have gone out. In fact, perhaps it's there that you can learn to trust that there is another story about you, one that's stronger and more true than what you feel are this long list of unhappy endings, where ultimately God's love for you persists even when you can't. Let's pray together. Gracious God, This story comes to us like a freight train. There's so much darkness and so much loss, so much emotion just simmering under the surface, and that is true also in us. For some of us today, we carry these deep cauldrons of hurt, cauldrons of our mistakes, and which is why there's a gift in the fact that you show us that Joseph wasn't responsible for all that went wrong, and this is so true for us to help us to see that clearly. Let us know and to let go of what isn't our fault. And we also choose in this moment to receive the great truth that there are ways in which we can own our words, our harmful words, and choose to step away from the escalation that we see in this story that ultimately ends in all this pain. And there is always an opportunity to step toward the restoring of relationships by owning who we are and the things that we've said. But also in this moment, we ask, would you give us grace to trust that our poor choices don't determine all of our outcomes and to acknowledge that your great story in the world, it continues despite where we find ourselves today, that ultimately it's truer that your love for us is greater, that the hope that you bring to us is stronger. Give us grace to receive that in whatever way we can today as we go forward into all that we face. Grant us peace, we ask, in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen.